0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Voices of Music Therapy podcast. I'm your host, Brian Lacasio, and on today's episode, our guest is a board-certified music therapist and researcher who has co-authored several chapters on music therapy in the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, also known as the NICU. Her research centers on the use of music and music interventions to support parent-infant attachment with a focus on fathers. This professor is an experienced clinician who has practiced music therapy and supervised student music therapists across settings for clients with a variety of needs across the lifespan. In addition, she is a music educator with experience teaching early childhood music and adaptive lessons. She received the Master's in Music Education and Music Therapy degree from the University of Kansas and dual bachelor degrees in music therapy and music education from the College of Worcester. She's currently completing her dissertation at the University of Kansas, which examines infant responses to fathers' live singing. Prior to Baldwin-Wallace, she is a graduate teaching assistant and undergraduate researcher mentor at the University of Kansas. We are so excited to welcome our guest, Assistant Professor Kara Kane. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast. So shall we dive in? Let's do it. All right. All right. The first question that I have for you today is, how do you define your understanding of music therapy?
1: This is such a good question. It's such a hard question, and it's a question I always ask my students, so it feels like I'm taking my own medicine right now, because I'm like, at any point in the semester, I could be like, define music therapy. <laughs> um But when when I teach it in the intro class, we take a bunch of different English language definitions and we like dissect them all and we say, what are the most important parts of the definition? So I'll kind of go through that because that helps me understand it as opposed to getting caught up in like the specific language, because it's a really controversial thing that we have we disagree Mm -hmm. about in our profession is it music, is it music interventions, is it music experiences, is it the elements of music? Even music itself is this word that um, we cannot really define. So I think the first part of the definition is that there's some sort of intentionality. Um, So we're either basing what we do on evidence or it's on our own experience as a therapist. Um, But whatever it is, it's coming from a place of intention, right? It's not random. We are planning it in some way, even if we're in an in acute setting and we don't know who we're about to see, like we have intention and in what we do in the session. So there's intentionality. Of course, there's music, right? And whatever that might mean. Um, and it means a lot of different things to different people. And we have a therapist and a client and a therapeutic relationship. And so that part is really important the therapeutic relationship part that's what really distinguishes it from other music experiences and i think that it's the relationship between the relationship and the music that then is promoting some sort of change so that's another component of the definition is that we have an impact on the client in some way and usually that's change because people often come to therapy looking for some sort of change and then we have the therapist's education or credentialing or whatever it is, we know that that person is trained in some way. And so that depends on, you know, where you're getting your definition from, what the standards are in that um, country that music therapy is being practiced in or whatever. But that's the last piece that students often forget that part, right? Is that we want to say that like, hey, there's actual training here that happens. I think I got all the components I was trying to So that's not a really, not a super smooth definition, but I have the pieces there.
0: Well, maybe that's the route that um, we can shift our outlook of it to, is that we can look at the aspects as opposed to like, I think having the definition might be culturally limiting. And I think you demonstrated a very great example of allowing it to be cross-cultural and unique. With like aspects, and maybe the aspects are the definitions. So I really appreciate that.
1: Oh, actually. good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like what are the what are the ingredients? Like what makes it turn out to be music therapy? Like what are the ingredients in the recipe?
0: Yeah, I encourage those who are listening to think about if there's any other ingredients or any other aspects in music therapy that they think we didn't cover, and let us know. That's that's really that's very intriguing to me. So from defining music therapy and your understanding of it, let's go back in time a little bit and discuss what led you to music therapy in the first place.
1: Well, I heard about music therapy in high school from my flute teacher, and I think that she gave me an article actually um, about a private practice, and I ended up working at this private practice. So there's like, and there's a couple full circle moments here um, in my story. So I got really interested in it. I was looking at all these different schools about pursuing music therapy, and it was tricky because I was really specific in what I was looking for. I really wanted a smaller university. I wasn't so sure if like music therapy was going to be right for me or not, and so I wanted some options to like not be a music therapy major if I decided that wasn't for me, but I ended up going to the College of Worcester and stuck with it the whole time, of course, and then now I'm kind of coming back and now I am teaching students from the College of Worcester, which is really, really cool. So that's, I guess, not just what led me to music therapy, but a little bit of my history as a music therapist. I think in terms of like what attracted to me to the profession is that music had been just a part of my life. I was good at it. I was in band, you know, I took lessons, I did all the things. um, But I never was super interested in being like a band director or a performer, like none of that was where I saw myself. Although I did end up majoring in music education as well. But yeah, and I always wanted to be in a helping profession. So it was like, you hear about it, and you're like, yep, that's it.
0: Yeah, a lot of people say it's in high school, which makes sense because there's this expectation to choose your career before going into college. But it's always those music educators who are who are telling people about music therapists. So shout out to them. I think that's underrecognized. I
1: absolutely agree with you, though, because they they know their students who are really musical and who like potentially are interested in going into music and and they're able to say, Hey, did you hear about this? But you know, we have a lot of people who come into music therapy who didn't hear about it, right? Who get some degree and something else. And then they're like, I wish I had heard about this before. So it's tricky because, it's still and i'm still like i was talking to a prospective student just yesterday who said like i just heard about music therapy she had already kind of started her college search process she's like how do i add in the schools with music therapy because there aren't that many and Mm -hmm. and so she was like felt like she was scrambling to figure out is this even something i can pursue and because she just heard about it and she's maybe going into her college search process or even starting to apply already. I don't know, it happened so early now.
0: <laughs> yeah, sophomore year people are looking. Oh
1: my gosh, that was not my experience.
0: Out of curiosity for you learning about music therapy prior and then pursuing it, did you find that what you'd learned about in high school was like a different perception of what you experienced once you came in hmm. and you started getting your education?
1: That's a good question i don't think i knew as much about the profession as our current students do coming in i feel like our students come in they've done like a research project or they've shadowed a music therapist i did get to do that i did shadow deforia lane in high
0: school wow okay
1: (laughs) yes at toddler rock which is at the rock and roll hall of fame so that's kind of a unique program in and of itself so i'm not sure i think i was very open. I'm not sure I had like a picture in my head. I wanted to work with people with disabilities. That's kind of what I was drawn to about music therapy from the beginning. So that was something that I, I had like a lot of opportunities to do right away in the degree. Right. And so I felt like that was kind of where I was headed. So I, I had more of like an idea of who I wanted to work with rather than what I thought music therapy was.
0: Yeah, I always give kudos to the people who know who they want to work with right off the bat.
1: But then it changes, right? Because you have a career that expands time. And so I am I think that's exciting about music therapy is that you maybe you start in one place and then you have this opportunity to go to the NICU, for example, and then you're like, OK, I'm going to do that. Like, I have some overlap in my background and transfers that I can make there. And I'm, mm-hmm. there's this, you know amazing person here where i am um, that i can learn from so why wouldn't i take that opportunity to do that
0: it is one of the wonderful things about the profession you can always change up your settings change up the the type of work environment so it's it's very flexible in that way and i was going to say
1: too like we we we're also pioneering these areas of practice right like we're not done we don't have a, a set number of places where we work or go like we are continually growing and saying actually music therapy can be beneficial here and it can be appropriate here and and all of that
0: so then with all of those changes and all of those expansions within the music therapy field i'm sure over your career span it's it's changed as well so for you currently what does music therapy look like
1: so i'm super itching to get back into practice I don't have I'm not currently practicing but I am teaching so my current role as a music therapist is as an educator and so I'm also directing the program so I have an administrative role as well so we have I work with two other music therapists on staff and I'm constantly learning from them and from my students and so I don't really feel like I'm an experienced professional yet like I still feel very much like I'm i always learning about what music therapy is, what it can be, how it works. You know, we don't, we don't have answers to all of these questions. And so it's kind of an interesting role. I think as an educator, I feel both like, I know that I can't teach my students everything that they're going to need to know. Um, and so I'm trying to figure out who can I connect with them that knows more than me, you know, how can I lead them to like, their path where they're going to continually learn but I'm I'm still very much like somebody who doesn't feel like an expert yet
0: (laughs) music therapy seems like one of those careers where you feel like you finally got it and then there's a curveball thrown the next day with a client and then you hear about this new research or this new practice or discussion that was in a conference and all of a sudden your expectations change
1: yeah I think that I think that we have a benefit of being in this kind of profession of, of always needing to be learning from other people. And I think that kind of generationally with music therapists, we haven't had that many generations of music therapists yet. Like we still mm-hmm. are, you know, kind of aware of the pioneers and they're in our recent history um, in terms of I guess, as an established profession with training programs in the U.S., we have, you know, of course, music therapy has kind of been around in different ways, but as an established profession, we're so young. Um, But I feel like our current, like, newer generations are really curious and, like, open-minded and don't, um, don't necessarily feel some of the same pressure to define music therapy in a specific way. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that I might be like overgeneralizing there, but I, I just feel like we have people who are coming up in the profession that I'm just so excited that they're here because they're going to be amazing leaders for our program. And like each generation of music therapists, I think we, we know more and we're better prepared and just, it's very exciting. I think it's an exciting time to be a music therapist and yeah. scary and challenging, but also exciting.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, with all these um, lesser implications of like expectations for people as the world is expanding and there's more options and careers that also, as you're saying, leads to less pressures as to, oh, what does this have to be? Maybe it doesn't, maybe it just is what it is. um, And as long as we're doing the work, it might be more focused in that way.
1: I think I see too, like we're coming back to old ideas. Like um, I kind of everything old is new again. Like we have, especially with community music therapy, like it, it has echoes. I think of what music therapy originally looked like in this country, at least with more kind of recreational aspects in mental health hospitals. We see some of that, like in community music therapy, where we're talking more about who has access to music. People are seeking out music therapy specifically for music and not necessarily for those non-musical outcomes. So, I don't know. We, I think we're, we're going to see kind of traces of our history that always are coming back to us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so this is the big question that I always ask people. But within the history, how are you contributing to that history or what do you contribute to the world of music therapy? And our big question, how are you innovative?
1: Mm. Um, That's a good question because I don't know if I feel entirely innovative yet. Like I feel like I'm still learning and sometimes like coming back to ideas that I know have been around for a long time, like something that Mm -hmm. I'm super interested in are those sociological functions of music, like what folks have been talking about for uh, a long time. And so like, how do we use music as a society and how does that inform our music therapy practice? But I guess, kind of more concretely, I have the opportunity, and I'm very humbled by it, to lead a program into the future. And um, I'm replacing somebody who was there for a long time and who had left a a great legacy at the university. And so um, it's now kind of my challenge, and it's an exciting one of like, how do we take this program forward? How are we forward thinking? How are we making sure that we have, you know, we're addressing in the curriculum all of like, the social things that are happening in the world. So how are we talking about race and music therapy? How are we talking about gender and sexuality? And um, how are we kind of at least providing some foundational information or at least the structures to start thinking that way? And, And how are we kind of pushing the profession forward? And so that is kind of the exciting place that I'm at and where I'm like, I feel like there's some Right now I'm kind of dreamy about it. Like, I feel like there's limitless opportunities. I know that there will be reality checks as I go forward. Um, But I kind of feel like this as an educator, this is kind of like my life's work of like, it's not going to happen immediately, but like, I'm, I'm going to be doing this for a long time of, of having kind of the very great responsibility that I'm kind of aware of being a big one of like, how do I shape future music therapists, or at least help them get started because it's really just the beginning and um, and that's something that i'm telling them too. my students is like this is the beginning do you not think that when you get your degree like you ha- will have learned everything like this is just like the first page in your music therapy mm-hmm. book
0: oh that's beautiful <laughs> i hear that and I, I hear a passion in what you're saying and i hear an inspiration which i'm sure gets passed on to your students but yeah you you really do, and the edu- music educators, music therapy educators, right. have that that large responsibility. Yes. You all could potentially just decide as a collective how you want to shape the profession, and I mean that is what big conferences are for. And so that's wow, that's incredible.
1: Yeah, I I don't I can't imagine that actually happening because we have so many disagreements within our profession about what music therapy is and what it should be. But. Yes. <laughs> also a kind of a beautiful part about how different it is and how but a challenging part because that that question how do you define music therapy how do you explain it um, we struggle with that as a profession because there's so many different ways that people understand it um, and in so many ways we teach it I guess too
0: and part of that back and forth is what helps everyone feel represented within music therapy and within that scope so I love all the things that you're talking about, though, regarding um, the humanistic aspects of race and gender and sexuality and able-bodied versus disability and all these different aspects that are on the humanistic approach level and then expanding that and teaching that base to students before they practice the therapeutic relationship.
1: Yeah, I think that we are kind of aware of that having been lacking perhaps in the past of and music, it's itself like we've um, sometimes we try to separate music from culture. I I think mm-hmm. especially in some kind of some ways of thinking about music, and so that's impossible. <laughs> and so we have to kind of be considering that for our clients, but also for ourselves. Like where are we coming from? What are our assumptions? Um, what are we bringing? What are our clients seeing from us? You know, that's all part of that. That kind of dynamic process, the relationships that I mentioned when we were talking about the definition between the music, the client, the therapist, the relationship. Ken Bruchin talks about that. Again, like these are not my original ideas. I want to make sure that I'm clear about that. But all those multiple relationships that are in play.
0: Yeah. And looking at these different relationships is actually for our listeners, one of the things we're going to dive in on today's episode. So for today's episode, we will be looking at fathers and infant directed singing. So stay tuned right after this commercial break. We're going to dive in and learn all of the great, wonderful research that Kara has been doing. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Voices of Music Therapy podcast. We are here and have the honor of interviewing assistant professor Kara Kane, and we are just about to dive into the topic of fathers and infant-directed singing. However, I did not mention how we know each other. We were just talking about the beginning of the education process and the responsibility of teaching individuals, and that's actually where our story between Kara and I begins. So, Kara, if you want to talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. So brian was in the first college class that i ever taught um so it was actually during my masters at ku and unexpectedly um i co-taught that uh, introduction to music therapy class with another gta kendall joplin um amazing music therapist and um Yeah, Brian got to experience a lot of me like figuring out how to do that for the first time um, doing my best Dina register impression, actually. So but yeah, that was kind of the beginning of doing some teaching at KU and then kind of leading into my doctorate and then seeking an academic position. It just um, I never actually went into my master's thinking I would be a college professor. That was never my intention.
0: It's so fascinating because I feel like I, from like a third party way, got to observe you like, becoming, yeah, your growth and becoming like a master and then becoming like a professor and all of these various transitional points. And so that's as you got to view like me going yes. and becoming a music therapist and like, what does that look like? And what kind of style of therapy do I practice? So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we have we both been able to see the other person really grow over time. That's pretty cool. That it feels pretty lucky. Um, yeah. So I went into my master's thinking it, part of it was because of where kind of my life and family life was transitioning at that time. It worked out for me to get a master's at that time. And it happened to be at KU, which was, I was really excited about um, because my husband and I had applied to a bunch of different programs. For me, some of them were in music therapy, some of them were not. Um, And KU kind of emerged as the top for me. And then Danny got into KU for creative writing and I got funding at KU. So it all was, it felt very serendipitous that we kind of arrived from the Cleveland area in Ohio to Lawrence, Kansas. And then I just wanted to be a better clinician. I just wanted to further my skills, get more expertise, be stronger, be more knowledgeable, all of that. And then I got there and I was like, I really liked being back in school. I really like learning. I was like, um, it felt very nice to be kind of, I want to say it's like self-focused a little bit. Like you get to spend your time like thinking about what is music therapy? You know, how do I practice? What are my strengths? Like you get to do a lot of reflection on not just yourself, but the profession. And, and I got to supervise students like consistently, which helped me grow as a therapist so much. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that just kind of led, and we were still there. My husband actually bought a bookstore. (laughs) And um, so we're like, well, I might as well stay and get my PhD. Um, That's not the only reason. Uh, It's not a great reason to get a PhD just because you're in a location. No, I uh, actually was really interested in the research part. Um, And then, yeah, so I'm still finishing up. uh, This job opportunity came up. I wasn't actually applying for jobs yet. Um, we were still very rooted in Lawrence, um, but this opportunity in Cleveland at the institution that I went through as part of the Cleveland Music Therapy Consortium, that job opening came up and I was like, well, I have to apply. There, I can't not apply. Um, and then I got the job. And so we're here. Um, but yeah, getting to see Brian, getting to see you grow and um as a starting out as a freshman bringing in your accordion um
0: oh yeah (laughs) totally forgot about that
1: (laughs) like to the very first musicianship assessment clinical musicianship assessment and you were like i brought my accordion because i think we had said like if you want to bring in another accompaniment instrument like feel free and we just loved hearing you play and then getting to watch you grow and uh yeah that was And then seeing you after leading this podcast, I'm just, it's, yeah, it feels like an honor to be able to witness your growth and to have a very small part in it. I really don't take any responsibility
0: for that, but. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's, I mean, likewise, it's, it's an honor to have you on the show. And also I, I would argue that you definitely like brought all the resources into that intro class that really like you brought professionals who were experienced in the specific topics to our class. It was unfortunate that it was at 8 AM, but that's another discussion.
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> funny. i forgot. No, it was at 9 30. Well <laughs> <laughs> felt, like eight. felt
0: like it. Felt like it. It did. <laughs> no, but yeah, it, it's really been an honor. And I wanna dive into that research because that's kind of what we're going to be referencing. So yeah. um fathers and infant directed singing. What do we need to know?
1: Oh, gosh. So should we start with just infant-directed singing in
0: general? Yes, yes. Maybe start with the definition, how we define that.
1: So I actually think of infant-directed singing in a couple of different ways. I think traditionally we think about the acoustic properties of infant-directed singing. So that when parents or caregivers or even children are singing and speaking to their infant, there's this characteristic way that we adjust our voices in response mm-hmm. to the infant, but it's also a way that we're capturing attention, we're expressing emotion, and so those acoustic features are like a heightened pitch, raised pitch, um, mm-hmm. we have this variability in pitch and tempo Um, we have a tapering off at the end of phrases there's rhythmicity to um, how we're both singing and speaking with singing in particular we have a lot of repetition so that's a little different Mm -hmm. than infant directed speech Um, and i'm comparing the two because they're related so we have these acoustic properties but i'm actually really interested in the fact that It's also an action. It's not just a noun. It's not just like an object. Uh, It's not just the acoustic properties, right? But it's this interaction Mm -hmm. that's happening between a parent and a child or whoever it is. could be a caregiver, a grandparent. And even children do this, like I mentioned, that it's this reciprocal interaction. So we're responding to the infant in the moment vocally, where we're seeing that something gets their attention and we continue to do it, for example. And because there are cultural differences. So that's why I don't want to define infant-directed singing just by the acoustic characteristics is that Mm -hmm. um, we see some slight differences across cultures and we also see differences across different parents. So sometimes fathers are singing differently or they're singing different songs. Mothers with depression have different acoustic characteristics to their singing. Mothers who have infants with down syndrome we've seen different characteristics there because those infants are responding differently so i don't want to narrow us down to just the acoustic features but i really think of it kind of as the act of singing that happens um rather than just the the music stimulus itself
0: yeah keeping in that same idea of therapy music client relationship there's just more to it than a single definition so I appreciate that so what made you interested in father specifically with infant directed singing
1: yeah I got interested in infant directed singing through kind of my interest in the NICU Mm -hmm. and then reading that research and being really interested in the parent experience so taking the, the, an infants in music class with Dr. Deanna Hansen-Avermite at KU and reading some of that attachment literature and thinking about the NICU and how influential the parents' experience was to impact the infant's experience, whether it's in the, the NICU or not. And so kind of the clinical work in the NICU got me interested in infants in general. And then then the mothers... And then I was kind of looking at what my thesis topic was going to be. And actually, I had a conversation with Helen Schumark and Deanna hansen Abermite, And I had mentioned wanting to do some qualitative work with mothers. And she had said, well, that's already been done. People have already done that. And that's true. <laughs> and I was like, OK, well, how about dads? And really, at that time, and still, there was just not much literature about dads in general not just dads in the NICU but like how dads are experiencing parenting how they're interacting Mm -hmm. with their infants specifically for infant directed singing i think we've gotten if we look at research overall in parenting we like had a big emphasis probably in the 90s is when we started thinking about dads and we're just kind of catching up i feel like we we still have the dads who are researching now are still mostly coming from marriages where we have a mom and a dad even now like our our research doesn't necessarily represent all dads or all um and again like saying dad is limiting right because we're talking about one type of person one type of parent but kind of that's where that came from this interest in like okay who are the parents we're not talking about well first step i can say we're not really talking about dads how can we learn more about them
0: yeah, absolutely. And then when you started looking into that in the research, did you find that there was a difference between the general research within psychology, within audio acoustics versus music therapy?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. A lot of this research isn't music therapy research. We don't have um, a lot because it's not an intervention. So I'm not talking mm-hmm. about a um, I'm not even necessarily talking about clinical populations, right? There might not even be a quote unquote problem that I'm trying to solve. Um, It's more like, what is this phenomenon that occurs and how can we understand it to inform then what we take into a therapeutic context? So a lot of the research that I'm reading is coming from psychology, but we do have music therapists who have used the rationale of infant directed singing to inform interventions and also really similar ideas such as communicative musicality and contingent singing. And that's what Helen Schumark talks a lot about in her research. Um, And infant-directed singing has informed some NICU work as well. So I guess the biggest difference is that when music therapists talk about it, they're talking about how they apply it in intervention. And a lot of the research that I'm reading that's also informing my research is talking about what is it what is it (laughs) you know what do we know about it and with the for me with the intent of then applying it to music therapy so kind of taking a step back that says before we are designing an intervention for dads in the NICU for example what do we know about dads not in the NICU what do we know prior to taking this into a therapeutic context
0: so naturally What do we know? What do we know? findings? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: um, So there hasn't been a ton of research about dads. We do know that if I were to really overgeneralize, I would say there are similarities and there are differences. (laughs) What we know is that from prior research that dads often choose more adult songs to sing with their babies. So there are some potential reasons for that might be that dads don't know children's songs as well and this is in comparison to mothers again so that's a little limited in who we're talking about and that there might be some acoustic differences to what dads are singing and this is all kind of some literature that's coming out of the late 90s early 2000s a lot out of canada um, really western centered um, research is who who we're talking about um and so then I wanted to ask with one of my doctoral projects is like, what are dads experiencing? So again, you can hear that kind of of that line from my thesis of one I ended up not doing a qualitative thesis really anyway, but I guess this is this project. (laughs) Maybe this is the project that I was originally thinking Mm of. Um, So I was able to interview 13 dads and ask them about their experiences singing to their infant. And I wanted to be very broad in who I interviewed. It ended up Not being super broad, all the dads I interviewed were married to and had a co-parent of a mother and they had infants. A lot of them were first time dads Mm -hmm. and all were from Kansas. I would say the majority were highly educated. So when I say things about dads, I want to be clear that I guess as I talk about this study in particular, Mm -hmm. you really can't necessarily generalize to all dads and most of these dads were white as well. So just keep that in mind as I kind of talk through the, the results that I found when I was able to interview them and ask them questions. One of my other guiding questions was how, if at all, are dads thinking about bonding and attachment, right? Because that's one of my mm-hmm. big areas of interest is something as that we say about NICU music therapy is that it can increase bonding and attachment. And I'm saying, okay, how real is this for dads? outside of that Mm -hmm. setting. And so what I found with these dads is that they're engaging in singing experiences really similarly. They are capturing their infant's attention. They are expressing emotion. um, They are being performative and silly and having that heightened experience that we kind of picture when we talk about infant-directed singing or speech. Mm -hmm. And that they're finding that it's really positive for their infants. So none of that was hugely surprising, but it was really exciting for me as like a beginning researcher to be like, oh, I've read about that in the literature and they're saying it and they haven't read that research study (laughs) and they're saying like these words. So that was really exciting. Similarly, like uh, aligning with previous research, dads thought it helped them stay calm and it helped their infants stay calm when they sang or it grabbed their attention. So the two purposes that we really are clear on that infant-directed singing is for, dads were saying that, yes, that's why they used infant-directed singing. It's kind of exciting because we have this qualitative information and we're starting to get some more quantitative, like biometric information that says that actually this is co-regulation. So it's not just the parent helping the child regulate, but they're regulating together. Oh, wow. That is really exciting for like Therapeutic context, right, especially in really Mm -hmm. stressful caregiving environments. So um, that to me is a really exciting thing for um, for any parent that it seems to be that singing helps helps them stay calm and stay present. And we had a couple of dads that because it was a qualitative study and I didn't have to be super strict about who was enrolled and if their their child had to be um, a child that didn't have a disability, right? Because if we're looking at um, so for my dissertation, when I'm going to be looking at how infants are actually responding to sound, I want to kind of narrow which infants I'm looking at because then if I have a lot of diversity in the sample, then I can't tell what is making changes happen so and anyway in this study i got a couple of dads one who had had a child in the nicu and then another who had a child who had a i'll say serious medical diagnosis it's a chronic condition and they both use music to kind of cope with that with their child and so that was really exciting too because it's like that's what we say that music therapy can do and these dads did it and they did it on their own which is also exciting too, but it kind of raises the question of like how needed is a music therapist if somebody can kind of arrive at that. But
0: mm-hmm.
1: again, 13 dads, dads who said, I want to participate in the study because I do sing to my child. So they were probably the kind of dad who was already going to do that right. and music therapists work with all kinds of people. So kind of keeping that in mind. The two findings from my study that I think I was most surprised by as I was, one of my questions was how are fathers influenced? Like what are the influences when they are choosing what they're going to sing or how they're going to sing? And what I really anticipated is that they'd be really influenced by their spouse. That we see a lot in parenting literature that especially in relationships where we have kind of more distinct gender roles. So in the heterosexual marriage with a mother and a father, we see a lot of maternal influence on paternal behaviors. So I would have guessed that we would see a lot of maternal influence on paternal singing. But actually, it was a different finding. And again, 13 dads, so I don't want to overgeneralize here. But these dads said, actually, I sing different songs than my wife. It's our own kind of unique experience. So that was really exciting because I thought, oh, this is a way that kind of fathers are kind of distinguishing their role with their child. So they have this unique relationship and that singing kind of represents that. Um, But they also influence their spouse. So like in some other parenting, non-musical parenting literature, we see more of one direction. But here we're seeing like a bi-directional influence, that they're both influencing each other. And that sometimes for these dads who potentially are like dads who already were really excited to be kind of labeled as singing dads, they're saying, actually, I encourage my spouse to sing more. I sing more and I'm always telling my wife to sing. So that was exciting because that was like not what I expected and not what we kind of read about in the literature.
0: I'm curious based on what you're saying, if the initial process of singing was instigated by either spouse
1: Hmm. you know I didn't ask that question like who sang first Mm -hmm. um I will say that there are differences that came up that dads mentioned like in the newborn phase versus as their infants were older and more interactive is that some dads were really discouraged actually early on because they weren't getting a lot back from their child Mm -hmm. and so they felt like music wasn't working that was something that I heard like oh this isn't taking like this isn't working but then now that she's older now that she's nine months or however old at that time that I interviewed the dad like now she really loves it or or you know now he's laughing and singing along or bouncing to the music and so Mm -hmm. I yeah I guess I think that when we talk about infant directed singing and we say infant so broadly, we actually should be clear that it's not this magical thing that you can do to instantly soothe your infant because their needs differ. Like a newborn is so, so very different than a six month old who is different than a nine month old, you know, like um, they go through these stages. And so we can't just, I think it's, for music therapists, we should be aware that we don't just say that infant-directed singing can do this and this and this and this. You should always sing to your infant. We can't say that it's always going to quote-unquote work um, because sometimes they have needs like they need to be fed, and no matter how much you sing to them, they're still going to cry because they're hungry, <laughs> right. or they're, um, they're a little itty-bitty baby who that kind of sensory input at that time is not actually soothing. It might be more overwhelming. I'll share my last like really interesting finding with this study is that, so I asked dads this question, how, if at all, does singing to your infant influence bonding? And they were many of my dads in that study were really, um, they had this reaction. Oh, I've never thought about that before. Um, so that kind of tells you something right away is that bonding is not something that was like front of mind for these dads, which was really surprising to me. Of course, like I'm biased. I'm thinking about attachment and bonding, like all the time, like researching it. And so they really were like, huh, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, we, I bet like, probably does maybe I think we would have bonded in other ways so that was really surprising to me is that they really didn't conceptualize singing as something that they were doing for bonding some dads did say like well I hope that music is a part of our relationship as he grows up that we can share music like kind of like looking into the future and saying like when my kid is old enough I want them to take lessons I want them to be able to play with me, like, because I had some dads who were musicians, of course, who were in the study. Not Mm -hmm. all of them, but, or who were really big listeners. Like, I want them, maybe in veiled terms, like, I want them to have good music taste like me. Um, Like, (laughs) I want us to share this. Right. So they are kind of conceptualizing bonding as something that happened later on, but not something that was happening right now. And so that was really kind of somewhat shocking to me that it wasn't it wasn't this thing i feel like mothers are given a lot of messages about bonding especially like with breastfeeding and bonding and and postpartum depression and kind of impacts on bonding it's like we get these bonding messages and i'm not sure that dads are getting them as much Mm -hmm. and i did on these two to kind of qualify who this sample was, I believe they were all biological parents too. So maybe that would be something that adoptive parents would be thinking about more would be like that those kind of bonding and attachment concerns. They might be more concerned about it at the outset, but I would kind of disagree with my participants a little bit. I think that they were engaging in bonding experiences. They just weren't thinking of them that way because there's a scale that I'll share let me pull up the reference here it's called the paternal postnatal attachment scale and it has three kind of constructs that are in that scale patience and tolerance pleasure and interaction and then affection and pride so these are all like components of paternal attachment and this is a little tricky because it's a a self-report measure so okay Um, I think there's some limitations there because attachment really is about interaction. Um, So this is going to be kind of the paternal view of the attachment process. But they were describing these constructs throughout their interviews. You know, they were saying singing helps me stay calm and patient. It helps me have these pleasurable interactions. I'm expressing my love for my infant. We're having these special times together while we sing. And so I thought, oh, they're describing bonding. They're just not thinking of it as bonding and so the conceptual differences between me as researcher and what's been kind of researched as a bonding or attachment construct is different from what dads are thinking kind of just um, more generically what is bonding oh it's something that happens like later I'll know if I'm bonded when my kid grows up and wants to be around me kind of thing
0: Interesting. So it sounds from that like more of a destination. Right. To a journey. Right.
1: Which I think what we know from the research Mm. literature is that it's patterns of behavior over time.
0: I'm curious, too. You mentioned a little bit about the music that they chose. And I'm wondering if regarding that music, did you see any trends regarding whether it was established songs versus improvise songs singing or speaking in a certain way.
1: Yeah, I had a lot of dads talk about how they made up songs on the spot. That's something that mothers do too, but I uh, this group of fathers, I think they did it quite a lot. But they sang all kinds of songs. And I even had a dad who was a musician who was like really intent on not singing children's songs. Um, But then he was like later, like she loves Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Like, I don't know why. Like, I think he had the idea that he would kind of get his baby singing 12 tone songs or something. But, um, but then he kind of, he recognized that's not what she was responding to. And he was able to kind of meet her needs. I think. You know, I heard Elvis songs and Beatles songs and jazz standards and hymns and country songs. Like, you know, they went across genres. Some children's songs, some not. Lots of improvised songs, too.
0: I was just curious, because I know that's a thing within um, the mother's literature, and I was wondering if the men that you interviewed felt comfortable doing that, or if there was any hesitancy towards it.
1: No, I think they felt very comfortable. I remember one dad kind of talking about how he felt like in comparison to his wife, he was a little bit more playful. I think I had a couple dads actually mention that. So not like all 13, but a couple that said that they were more playful. Their wife was more likely to sing like an established song where they were maybe more likely to make up a silly song in the moment. Um, I remember a dad like describing a song to me about how he would make up a song that like dad was the best. Mom is just okay, but, like, dad is the best. Um, so there's a lot of playfulness there, which, which we know from the literature, too, outside of music, is that dads, there's some speculation that dads can be kind of more rough and tumble, playful, activating so rather than this kind of like sensitive responding, we have some activation where, which then teaches an infant or a young child how to regulate because they have to kind of regulate down from these high arousal experiences. But I'm not exactly sure if that's fully established or if that's still kind of being explored because I, I, I hesitate To put all dads in that kind of category, you know, especially since I don't think we've researched a ton of families that have two dads or who have parents who are neither dad nor mom. So I think we're still learning about that. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, that was my first thought that came up when you were describing that is do individuals like the cultural implication of certain roles and that influencing those behaviors or if they're more nature and nurture. So it's, it's something really interesting in that i do have another question that is very um it's like this and so yeah within the father and infant bonding did you find or did they even mention how that influenced the father's bonding with their with the mothers like Mm. that additional component within it
1: yes i had a couple of dads say like you know we have so much less time together my wife and i or my spouse and i or my partner and i have so much less time but sometimes when we sing together you know this is kind of a moment for us to also be together and be together as a family and i had some dads talk about i maybe it was just one but like we harmonize and we kind of share this musical moment together so i think it is a way that sometimes parents are also together with one another while they're parenting, especially during a time when you have significantly less time, there's like a, a really big identity shift and a big shift within the couple relationship that happens after an infant is added. So it's an interesting, well, I'm curious about what made you ask that question.
0: It was kind of a stepwise progression for me because I was thinking of how the fathers were in relation to the mother's influence who would sing more. Right. And then I thought, oh, actually, That's a relationship in itself. We're talking about bonding. So the Mm. child's relationship with the parents and then also just like the multiple factors, it's a family unit. So how do they influence each other within the unit? So that's kind of how I expanded. And there's actually an additional expansion that I'm thinking of, but I'm like holding off for a little bit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, our attachment relationships to our parents do influence our romantic attachments to our partners Mm -hmm. so you know some of that first relationship kind of predicts to some degree what our romantic relationships will look like so there there's definitely connections interconnections
0: yeah and i'm thinking when you're talking about these um fathers voices i'm assuming most of them were if not all cis and so i'm thinking as well how that may influence a music therapist coming in who is also a cis male and thinking about if those same techniques, like the relation, we talk about like mother versus like the female music therapist a lot, um, or it's been discussed. And then I'm also wondering like for the male music therapist, if they are taking those same perspectives and style.
1: I'm trying to kind of like think through your, question this is a big this is
0: almost a thesis like idea. (laughs) so sorry about that no
1: it's a big question it's a good question something i'm really interested in is how does the gender of the music therapist especially as we're Mm -hmm. kind of coaching parents whatever their gender is to sing to their infant and so if we're coming in and we're majority female in this profession right if we're coming in with Mm -hmm. female voices and with kind of maybe a predisposition to know a lot of children's songs. And also we were trained to know a lot of children's songs, like more than the average bear. And so one thing that my research that I've been thinking about is like, how do we make sure we're not assuming that the mother's way or the female's way is the best way? Mm -hmm. It's just the most researched way. Yeah, Infants do get exposure to the birthing parent's voice in the womb. So they get more exposure to that before birth, but then after birth, you know, there's an opportunity for either parent to have a really familiar voice. And so some of that early literature that I'm kind of curious about those findings that say, well, infants prefer female voices. I'm kind of want to push back on that because that finding I believe is that they prefer female voices and then they prefer an unfamiliar female voice before they prefer a male voice. And I I just want to say, what's the message that we're sending to dads here or somebody without a female voice about their importance and the ability that we have as music therapists to potentially be harmful or to discourage someone from doing that by saying, well, you know, babies prefer female voices, but actually babies need their parents and we need to support parents in interacting with their babies musically and not musically. So whatever their gender is. But yes, so kind of being aware of our perspective as a music therapist, who we are, who we bring into the room, who we are perceived as by our clients. And you know, what we've found about infant directed singing is that the relative pitch is raised. So wherever somebody is kind of starting at, it's this kind of how many semitones are we raising tends to be similar, even if we have different starting points. So again, kind of why we can't, why I push back against. The ideal range is between this note and this note, but it's actually like the act of raising the pitch, I think is mm-hmm. something that is expressing the emotion. So that's where some of our emotional yeah. expression is coming from. But yeah, I, I think there needs to be a ton more research about parents who are not cis and um, really research is just dipping its toe into LGBTQ parenting and transparenting and you know like there's a lot we don't know but it's something that that I know is a limitation of my research too is that when I'm talking about dads and I'm talking about dads who maybe are co-parenting with mothers I'm talking about really a specific subset not all dads everywhere
0: but even that that raising pitch is super informative because it sounds like that spans regardless of gender the natural question for our listeners uh, many are music therapists who practice is what are their implications for what they can take in or like your biggest advice to somebody who may be beginning to work in the NICU or beginning to work with early intervention and attachment with parents what are some things that they can keep in mind
1: i think just being aware of not assuming anything about the roles of the parents in the room i think that's something that still happens for the medical professionals and music therapists who are walking into the room you know we have different reasons why parents are able to be in the nicu or not and so um just being aware and non-judgmental about what those roles might be and not making assumptions so i have a four-year-old i still even if we put my husband's contact number as the primary number, which we usually do because he's much better at answering his phone and responding quickly. Sometimes I'm still like called or texted first. I'm like, no, <laughs> like we, are, yeah. we are trying to say like, this is the primary contact person. Um, and so that happens. It's kind of sneaky and how it, it kind of happens in some of our assumptions. Um, so being aware of our assumptions as a music therapist, I think is key. Being really accepting of what all parents are bringing musically. You know, parents really want to know the right answer. (laughs) So they really want you to tell them. They probably want to say, well, what song should I be singing to my babies? Some parents might ask that question. And so really it's, it's not about the perfect song. It's really about the relationship that you're developing by singing it. So encouraging parents to like sing whatever songs are meaningful to them that idea of song of kin that joanne lowey talks about a lot i think is important that parents often have a connection with a song if i look back at like my parenthood journey with my husband i was already doing this research (laughs) so i was like i know what songs i'm singing to my baby (laughs) but like but my husband also kind of found some songs that were really meaningful to him that he sang while i was pregnant and so like some of this might be happening already and to just encourage whether or not those are children's songs whether or not they're even songs at all so another area that i'm interested in is like is there infant directed rap is there parent child rap happening and so also maybe not limiting it to singing in the NICU it might be a little different right we have to be aware of having the potential to be overstimulated And so some of those sounds, especially if we're having like a lot of those high frequency sounds that happen in speech at the beginning of words, if we're having kind of rapid speak singing happening, then might not always be appropriate in the NICU, but maybe outside of the NICU, we can encourage parents to also be musical in other ways too. Let's see. I think the other thing with fathers is to be aware the fatherhood identity It has a different trajectory than motherhood identity when we're comparing those two. And so kind of being aware of a father as a sociocultural role and that we kind of know things are maybe different for dad. So one thing that's really concrete is when are we providing our services? Are we providing them during dad's working hours? I mean, plenty of mothers also work, but we see some of those roles happening, right? So that we have dads only being able to access the NICU on the weekends or the evenings and music therapists might not be working then. Are we providing communication in a way that dads can access? Um, Are dads involved in the pregnancy beforehand? Are we involving dads as medical professionals, as music therapists, in some of that pre-labor things so there's a lot of parenting classes that happened and that happen and so are we including dads in that dads feel excluded in in a lot of ways outside of the NICU as well so how are we making sure that we are including dads and we are being inclusive
0: yeah and also that makes me think just maternity paternity leave and like things like that another great example of those influences
1: yes yes yeah, that's a big difference in in who takes time and if employers are really accepting of it, even if they have it. And if people, what's the culture at the workplace, Are dad's feeling comfortable to take that time.
0: All these concepts are extremely insightful. And it's a great amount of knowledge that you're, you're providing for our listeners. And for any of those of you who are practicing in early intervention or with NICU patients, that's a direct takeaway. And even if not, You may be working with the adults who are parents, and maybe those things tend to come up, um, whether attachment or um, responsibility within the family unit. So even though this is an episode for father and infant directed singing, it's applicable to the entire lifespan um, that we've been talking about.
1: I think so, too. I think there's some emerging research about hospice and lullabies in hospice in particular, and I'm not too uh-huh. super informed on that, but and we do see these kind of things coming back around um,
0: later on. Yeah, absolutely. For those of you who don't know, I currently work in adult hospice, and yeah, I, I've, I've definitely seen that trend. It's the songs of their 20s, and it's the songs at early intervention, both bring a lot of comfort, I think, because they're they're very big transitional points in our life.
1: I've got to say, too, I think music plays a role in those parts of our lives, maybe in a more... It might be more influential sometimes, right, when we're very young, when we're in our adolescence and it's part of our identity formation. We also have like musical milestones that commemorate experiences like marriage or giving birth or played at funerals and so these kind of important musical things come back then yeah
0: well thank you so much uh for being on the show i want to ask you is there anything that you want to plug or any resources or information how to reach you that our listeners would like to know about
1: Sure. I'd love to hear from people who have questions about my research. My dissertation research is going to be with dads and infants, and we're going to be looking at infant responses. So we're going to be a very different approach than the qualitative study, but looking at how infants are responding to dad's voices in the moment and doing kind of a more quantitative experimental research on that. And then I will plug my university. I will plug both Baltimore Wallace university, and the college of worcester uh, which are both part of the cleveland music therapy consortium if there's anyone out there who's interested in music therapy and pursuing that you might take a look at um, what those schools have to offer
0: yeah absolutely and all of those will be linked in the bio as well as a link to the developmental stages charts that you all can kind of get an idea of what that looks like there are many different ones just as a disclaimer and depending on the culture those will vary as well but then also that paternal postnatal attachment scale will also be linked there and all of the information and thank you so much for coming on i appreciate it and i know our listeners had a lot to learn from this episode thank you and for those listening don't forget to rate our podcast on apple music and listen to our playlist listed in the bio and subscribe to hear new episodes the second they're released. And uh, thank you all so much for listening. If you'd like to recommend a guest or engage more with us, you can email us at voicesofmusictherapy@gmail.com at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Voices of Music Therapy. And then if you haven't heard of the Music Therapy Podcast Collective, it's a great opportunity to earn CMTEs for listening to podcasts like you're doing now with an affordable option. And a lot of those proceeds or a percentage of them goes to helping those who are entering the profession and making it more equitable so it's a great resource and thank you all so much and i can't wait for you all to tune in to our next episode